before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Siddharth Batra who is essentially the co-founder of the X1 card which is a new revolutionary credit card. So Sid, thanks for joining me. Michael, pleasure to be here. One of the first things that I did wonder is in a market that's kind of saturated, why is X1 doing so well? What is it that really sets you apart? And also it does make me think actually why... Why actually create a credit card in the first place? Fantastic question. Very fair. Look, we at X1 are building the smartest credit card of all time. And what's fascinating to us, uh, and in general, that credit cards are, in our opinion, the best consumer product of all time. Uh, if you see what they've done, they've, they've increased consumption in the United States in particular, like no other financial instrument ever because they do something quite magical. They disconnect the spending and buying of a particular good and service from how you pay for it. So imagine you walk into like Walmart and buy a big screen TV, like your act of taking that TV home is very different from how you're gonna pay for that TV. If you have the money, you can pay it off the next day. If you're waiting for like a big bonus at work that'll pay for that TV, you have like, 30 days completely for free to pay it off. Or if you would like to pay it off over the next like year, you can do that too. That is absolutely like mind boggling, right? It's phenomenal. The, the funny part is like what I'm describing to you, which is the heart of a credit card has basically existed since like 1958. Isn't that mind blowing? It's the 65th year anniversary of the launch of a credit card. It is crazy. And so what happened is it's, so credit cards kind of got stuck in the past at some point. Um, and multiple reasons why I'm happy to get into it, but they're essentially stuck in the past. And so it's such a powerful, phenomenal kind of instrument. And coming from a background of having built like consumer products basically all my career, it's just fascinating to how such a fundamental thing has not changed for such a long time. And so we at X1 are essentially reimagining the credit card for the modern era that we're now in. So what is it about credit cards that have kept them stuck in in your words is there a reason for it so go back it's a really powerful thing right which is why almost every american has one as like a financial product that led to a lot of cheeky behavior in the past from like banks and financial institutions so for good reason there are now regulations the regulations do protect the customer but the regulations also have the effect of creating a massive competitive advantage for any existing bank because they can very easily pay that cost and adhere to the regulation, but it creates such a barrier for like a small company to come in. Like I've built a lot of products uh, and companies in different industries, like advertising, e-commerce. I worked in like AI research. Nothing has been harder than trying to build and ship this credit card. Like I just can't describe <laughs> to you. I've lost so many years at the back end of my life trying to make this happen. Uh, so has the, the, the founding team. But it's enormously difficult. And the regulations are a huge part of it. 
another aspect of it, which is why you don't see a lot of college dropouts creating like credit cards or financial products is there is a whole capital markets credit facility aspect of it. Uh, and it's fascinating, right? Because imagine this as a customer, you start spending at the beginning of the month on a credit card. You don't have to pay that bill until the end of the month, completely for free. So imagine kind of our scale, right? Where our customers are spending $60 million every month on the credit card. That money has to come from somewhere, right? So we basically have credit facilities that we borrow that money from, but it adds such an extra layer of complexity entrepreneurs struggle to just like raise funding in general, right? It's a very hard yeah. process to just get equity funding for the company. Uh, in our case, you have to battle with the regulations, but then you also have to go get this like pool of money, which is like a credit facility. So you're convincing these larger financial institutions to give us that money. So I think all of these is create like such a huge um, barrier to entry and not to mention the, the technical side of it. It is extremely difficult, even if you do all this to just build a product. Um, and so, as a result, what happens is like, even if someone attempts it, it takes them at minimum a grueling one year time period to go from nothing to having the first card live. And if you don't find product market fit, you don't, the customers don't like the product, that's kind of it, game over, right? You don't get another attempt. So that's kind of why credit cards have stagnated. Um, and what's very interesting is they're, they're quite commoditized in the sense that they're all the same. Like in the US, if you get a card from, say, American Express or Chase or Bank of America, Wells Fargo, it's like it's identical. They all compete with each other, try to offer you very similar features, similar reward points. So that's the state we're in. Do you think there's a benefit to keeping it in, in that way? Like, do you really think that it's not changed simply because they don't want it to change? Do you think there's a bit more to it or do you think it's just that simple? I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just that as these companies grow larger and they have millions of customers, they have a very healthy business that they're just trying to run and protect. And the general life cycle of innovation goes to the point where stuff gets incremental. They're all chasing like the next 2%, 3%. So they're not looking at more fundamental innovation. And the regulations create an environment where they don't have like, a lot of competitors, like we're the fastest growing challenger card of all time. And we've been around for like a year. Uh, we already are in the top 100 cards in the country. So there's not a lot of competition coming for them. So there's no reason for them to wake up in the morning, fear their market position and try more significant innovation. They're very happy with the incremental percent here and there. And that's what leads to the state we're in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get the impression as well that must have been difficult for you to start something like that you're coming in where all the big banks have multiple different variations of credit cards and you probably look at that and think it's a hard task but clearly you were up to it so what was it that convinced you to start x1 in the first place for us we looked at the credit cards and financial products that we were using and they literally hadn't changed for decades. What was kind of funny as well was we saw a lot of venture capital dollars and attempts at innovation flowing towards um, what is called the subprime sector. And subprime is a credit score kind of term. It just indicates like folks who are um, 
who are riskier assets to kind of lend to, right? That's sort of subprime folks that might be like lower income, more stretched for credit. So there were a lot of innovations in the market, like get your paycheck two days early, no fee banking, buy now, pay it off later. But as a customer, none of that resonated to like us or to me, right? I'm like, I don't want any of this stuff. I just want my credit card to be better. So for us, that gave us like conviction that if we build a phenomenal credit card for us, and what is kind of the opposite of subprime, which is called the prime audience, there is a massive business to be made here. So did that convince you that if you created a better card, then they would naturally gravitate towards you? So you emphasized on the actual card itself rather than just simply marketing a subcard better, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's why we branded as the smartest credit card ever. What we did is a very interesting story of like the, the launch of the credit card. So going back to my point about regulations, right? It's in the US, you just can't wake up and create a credit card company. The way the, the laws and regulations work, you must partner with an existing bank. That's how, that's how the relationship works, right? Uh, to be able to issue a card in all 50 states. So for us, like we didn't have that banking partner, like you have nothing, right? You just have the sort of idea that you want to create a, a credit card. So we found a very interesting way to bypass it. We launched a wait list for the product. Uh, and what we did in parallel is started building every other aspect of the card except the, the banking partnership. Uh, so we, you know, we built the actual look and feel of the app, started to think about all the, the features, designing them, building them. And then we announced the, the waitlist for the product. Um, and to our surprise in hindsight, like the waitlist went wild. The reception was unbelievable. Uh, we had 50,000 people sign up on the waitlist on the first day. If you had asked the team, like maybe like even a week before the launch, like, hey, what's like a dream scenario? Like that would have been the dream. And we got that in like a day. <laughs> Yeah. By the end of the first week, it was 200,000 people. Eventually, we would go on to amass a waitlist of 600,000 people, which is the largest ever waitlist in, in fintech, bigger than uh, Robinhood. And that's just a, a testament to what we were discussing earlier, where like there is so little innovation in credit cards. When customers saw it, they were like, this is, this is something new. This is something that I know I've wanted for a long time and it attracted like a massive bunch of people. Is there anything that you can speak to about growing waiting lists, about promoting something before you sell it, where you, I don't know, create it before you sell it kind of scenario? What do you put the success of that down to? Have you got like a, a shopping list of things that you would put it down to? It's a good question. In our case, the wait list was almost necessary. It was going to take us a year to figure out if this product was going to work or not. We had no banking partner. So the wait list became an effective way for us to test product market fit. That was why it was necessary for us. Um, on the wait list, we did, and our background is building consumer products. So we did a very classic consumer product thing where if you refer a friend to the wait list, we did two things to incentivize it. One, you will go higher up the wait list. I forget the exact numbers, but it was, if you refer a friend, you go 500 places up on the, the wait list. The second thing is, if you, if you referred a friend and they also got uh, a card, we would give you both 4X points for 30 days, which is a lot of points. And yeah. that 
along with all of our features, this led to this sort of viral loop with tons of people referring each other. And that was large part of the, the success of the wait list. What would you say didn't work? Like, were there any incentives that maybe you brainstormed and thought that probably won't go well? How did you think about incentivizing? Because some of it probably wouldn't work and some of it clearly did. So is there anything that you could speak to? Okay, we need to make sure that the incentives actually work as well. I think we were lucky in hindsight for this particular wait list. Like it worked really well. The the incentives almost from day one were like basically viral, which is how we ended up in such a such a huge wait list. Um, I think we also did to your point about like what else did we do well with the wait list? The seeding of the initial wait list was done quite thoughtfully. What we did is we went to our uh, our investors, people who are quite like prominent on Twitter, and got all of them to talk about the launch of the wait list at the same time. That definitely helped seed the viral mechanics and get fast attention at the same time, that's quite key as well. Because if you get like people slowly, often the viral effects don't kick in, but having having kind of share of mind for a large number of people quickly really helped us go viral as well. Is there anything that you could think about looking back that maybe you could have done differently? Anything that you thought, mm, maybe if we changed it, this would have gone so much better. I know, I, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, said so I imagine you got quite a bit that you would do differently. For sure. Uh, on It's really funny because we, the, the founding team and some of our early engineers are all like classically trained engineers from the best schools. Like they've built some phenomenal products like, you know, at Twitter and Google and other places. And on day one, they were all pretty prepared. When we asked them, like, hey, is everything going to be fine? How are you all prepared for this launch? They're like, everything is under control. Uh, and then the site went down. The traffic was so fast. <sighs> and you had, like, tens of thousands of people streaming in, like, every minute. The site went down. So we probably, <sighs> on day one, would have ended up with more than 50,000 people in hindsight. But, uh, you know, they, they stayed up the entire night. It was down for, I would say, like five, six hours. We stayed up the entire night and got the site back up the next day. So that was, that was quite fun. It was quite a, um, an adventurous evening to get that level. In hindsight, I, we would have been prepared a little bit more for the success case. Of if that actually happens, are we prepared to handle that kind of volume of people showing up at the door? What's the turnaround time of, let's say, increasing the bandwidth of the site or increasing the amount of people that you can take demand-wise? Is it like, okay, no matter what, we're going to have to start small, but if it could take a day or two to upgrade things, let's say, to mm -hmm. be able to handle the traffic, you've almost got to go in with the assumption that it's going to go well because of the long wait time before increasing it if you understand where i'm going with this like if you yes, start yes. too small you're never going to be able to handle it if it did take off like it did but then if you go too big is it costly to do that or would you advise people start big even though it might be a bit costly in the beginning yeah i think like you said hindsight is, is 2020 it's when you're in trouble, when your site is down, it becomes infinitely harder to recover quickly. So if we just wanted to handle this scale a day earlier, it was not that much work. But because we got into trouble, we were in a state where like the site was constantly going down, but then there's like barrage of customers that are still trying to kind of get in. 
So we were just stuck in that loop and it took hours to kind of fix that problem. Otherwise, it's not too difficult. My general sense is whatever your best case is, plan for 10x more. And that's usually the sweet spot of not a ton more effort, but protects your downside a little bit more. So in our case, if our dream scenario was like 50,000 maybe, and you know we planned for 10x more, we would have been just fine. That's an interesting way of thinking about it because it does mitigate the risk of the downside quite a bit. I imagine you've had to do that now it, moving forwards. You've had to think about the risks involved with playing too small, with not doing things a particular way. How do you think about risk and downside at the moment? Our story over the last year of growth has just been pretty crazy. Like We didn't expect it. So after the wait list, we launched the product and to give you a sense, within about a year, we went from nothing in terms of customers, spending on the card, revenue, to now we do, um, if you look at it on like a yearly basis, we're going to hit like a billion dollars in spending on the card this year. We're at 750 million right now. Uh, revenue as of now is like $45 million annualized revenue. Um, and, and so that's been just like unbelievable to go from zero to that so quickly. For us, we had this, this business is very different than a pure software business. If you think about the wait list, right? The wait list was purely software because you just had to scale to make sure you can handle the customers. Scaling for a credit business, particularly a credit card business is a whole different ball game because it has a lot of aspects to it. There is, of course, a software aspect, but even that gets complicated because now you're no longer handling people on a wait list. You're moving millions of dollars between people's bank accounts and because people are making payments, right? This is a, the stakes get pretty high and get serious very quickly. So scaling when you're dealing with people's money becomes a whole other ball game, right? That was one aspect that was quite challenging to kind of prepare for. The, the second aspect was um, well, credit facility. How much money do you have available from these banks to scale up the, the volume as customer, customer spending increases, right? That had to be scaled every few months as we were kind of scaling rapidly as more and more customers wanted the card. And the last kind of underappreciated part of all this is this combination of like compliance and customer operations where if you look at like any of these traditional credit cards, like hundreds of people in these division departments, right? We're much more of a technology company. And so both in terms of the systems we were creating and the philosophy of what kind of people we, we bring in, that helped us scale a bit more, but that's still very tough, right? If you, uh, if you go from no customer inquiries to like hundreds a day, like how many people do you need along the way to kind of fulfill those? Anyway, on, that, on that topic of hiring, like we, we're probably the only company that has a compliance person who knows SQL, uh, which is the programming language. Uh, and so we hire really like people who are, who are well-versed with technology and that lets us scale. So these were some of the aspects of why it was so difficult to just scale the, the business. Fortunately, now going back, the wait list became a way for us to throttle that demand and make sure we can grow smoothly without making it a bad experience for customers. So we could basically take more people from the wait list in a month that we're more prepared for scale. If we saw that our systems, our processes, 
or our funding would not cover this, we would slow it down a little bit. So that the waitlist became like a, a really, really excellent lever for us to handle the, the growth that we went through over the last year. Without that, it would have been like quite catastrophic. I'd be curious about what the experience would be like as a user. So how is it affecting credit scores from other banks, let's say? And it makes me think, you know, maybe you're not a financial institution, maybe you're not a bank in a quote. So how do you actually run the card? How do you, you know, organize the credit? How do you organize the repayment structure? Well, all that, I'd be really curious to know like the ins and outs of what that's like. Yeah, let's dive in. I think well, you can separate what we need from a regulatory perspective from what we need from like a pure product and systems perspective. So as far as regulations go, we're subject to all the same regulations a larger bank is subject to. We must adhere with every single one of those like uh, regulations that are listed out from showing customers their APR to handling payments properly. And the way that relationship works is like we work very closely with our banking partner as well as like an unbelievable legal and compliance team that's in-house. And they make sure like all the T's are, are crossed and the I's are dotted and everything is like really well done from a regulation perspective. So, um, so everything is handled really well. The interesting part though is our banking partners don't really build anything for us. You know, like Visa also, we have a phenomenal partnership with Visa, which allows the card to be used worldwide. They don't build anything for you. So then the entire machinery of uh, how do you show a customer their transactions? How do you calculate reward points? Moving money, like, like I said, millions of dollars between a customer's bank account, our bank account, uh, handling all of that to the really, really, I would say the standout um, app that we have built. All of that has to be done in-house. In fact, if you go further underneath the hood, things like, is this customer fraudulent or not? Is this someone who's just trying to come in with a stolen identity? On the other hand, if this customer is legit, how much of a credit line do we give them? How what APR do we charge on them? Do we even give them a credit card or not? So all of that decisioning has to happen inside the company. Uh, the mind-blowing thing is like through all of our scale, um, the team was like 20 people, 25 people that got us there with like 10 engineers uh, and a couple of designers. So it was a very small lean team that built out like all of these unbelievable systems. So you would be the the middle company between like the credit line, fulfilling the repayment, the APR, all that sort of thing. Like where does X1 come into it? Like what makes it different? What makes it doable? Because without a lot of financial availability, so income or finances. I would get the impression that unless you're a financial institution, being able to repay and recredit people and keep the system going must take a lot of financial backing to be able to do that. You mentioned banking partners, which is interesting mm -hmm. because you've partnered with other institutions in a way to be able to, to make this work, right? Yes. So I'll draw the distinction again. So there's there's two kinds of banking partners that we have. The the first partner is uh, an issuing bank. That bank has the ability to create a credit card in any state in the country. They can do that. So legally, what happens is when to the customer, it's an X1 card. 
It's built by X1. Uh, legally, that card is a card of the issuing bank. And so we do all of the work from like getting the card to the customer, the marketing, the building of the product, handling, we handle everything, right? So we build the, the whole thing, but legally it's, it's like the issuing bank's card. That's one aspect of it. The other is we need to partner with financial institutions to get access to credit. Now, if our customers are spending like $60 million a, a month, that money has to come from somewhere, right? Because we're essentially floating that to the customer. Yeah. And even though we've raised a bunch of money, we've raised like, even in the last six months, we've raised about $40 million. That's still not enough to cover those expenses because we no. need the $40 million to cover the operational expenses of the company. So this, this partnership is to get like a credit facility. And we have multiple of these partnerships with different banks. Um, they will give us, I think, a, a sum total of around $400 million now that we have in credit facilities sort of lined up for us to use. That's what we use for funding the, the spending on the, the credit card. Um, so those are the two relationships we need. But you can see if you zoom out a lot, we're from these banks, we're getting regulatory access and capital. But then the entire machinery of this product has to be built in-house, which, yes, you're right, was extremely complicated uh, and quite, quite difficult to do. But you know, we, um, we put together an amazing team that pulled all this off. In fact, there were kind of two, um, two key milestones in the company. If you look at the scaling challenges, we're just building this over the last um, year or so. The first one was building the first credit card that went live. So we had this massive wait list, but remember we had no like issuing bank. So mm -hmm. we had a ton of like building and kind of um, uh, building out of systems to kind of do to actually get to that point where we could issue even the first card. And I was joking, you know, I lost a few years of my life to try to make this happen. And the, the next phase was going from the first card being live to then having like uh, being able to scale to, you know, these hundreds of millions of dollars of spending on the card. Uh, so those were kind of the two major kind of milestones in the, in the history of the company that took a, a lot of wrangling to get there. A lot of like working with these banking partners as well as building our systems in-house. It sounds really complicated, but I'm actually fascinated by the whole thing. Like the idea of working with other institutions to come up with a system that works and we use technology to be able to do that. And I imagine there's a benefit all around. Like I imagine it's a system that works and benefits everybody involved, including the, the customers, the clients, whatever you guys would prefer to call them. But I feel like it's a fine balance to make sure that it does benefit everybody. Have you ever had to overcome some stumbling blocks? Maybe you've had to negotiate costings or whatever that benefit might look like. might be different from each company and each partnership that you have. Because if I'm right, you also give money off or vouchers or points or credit mm -hmm. like on top of what they would be spending to get vouchers or points and things so i imagine it's very complicated to even negotiate all of that never mind actually fulfill it, it must be difficult as well yeah absolutely uh, i'm gonna give you some more color here so the with the issuing bank there is like a partnership where you have to give them some cut off the the revenue that you're making as a as a company uh, what's amazing is that before we had this massive wait list when we tried to 
uh, go talk to issuing banks. They were just not that into it. They're like, well, I'm not sure this is a great idea. But after we showed the waitlist of 600,000 people, we just had a lot more leverage to be able to go and negotiate right. these uh, these deals. Yeah. So we got deals from, I believe, seven different issuing banks. And in that situation, you can actually kind of like uh, negotiate and wrangle them a little bit to get the best uh, the best deal. So that whole aspect of having a wait list gave us some leverage, which allowed us to kind of get a, a great deal on the, the economics with the, the issuing bank. Overall, the, the partnership works really well because if you look at like a traditional financial institution, they have the regulatory access, they obviously have the capital, but somehow they can't build as good a product as we can. So in this equation, it becomes a great benefit where um, the economics get shared on the capital side, um, as well as on the issuing bank side, allowing us to create tremendous value for the customer and keep a lot of those economics. Maybe I'll give you a couple of examples of things that um, yeah, uh, sure. a legacy financial institution would never make. Uh, maybe I'll give you the simplest, most trivial example. The primary job of a credit card is to let you spend money, right? I mean, that's what the, the, the purpose is. You pull up any credit card app from these top financial institutions, they don't do something as simple as showing you your credit card number. So imagine this, right? In 2023, if uh, you know, you're just sitting on your couch, you're surfing, say, TikTok, uh, and you see, and you see the TikTok leggings, you want to buy them right away. Uh, as soon as you get to the checkout page, you will realize that uh, I actually don't have the credit card on me. So then you have to walk to wherever your wallet is, pull it out, finish the transaction. It's a small thing, but like, like what era are we living in? We found a way to show you your actual card number like in the app. In fact, you don't even have to wait to get the physical card. You, As soon as you're approved for the card, instantly you will get your card number in the app. And guess what the single most used feature in the app is? People want to take the card number out of the app, right? They want to copy it and they want to spend their money, right? It's yeah. such an obvious small thing where we created value that any other financial institution didn't. Even though it sounds so silly in hindsight, like why does that not exist? I'll give you a more, uh, a more complicated thing that we built. Um, we have a concept called virtual cards. They're essentially just disposable card numbers but they allow you to do some pretty magical things. So if you think of credit cards, they're, even today, most credit cards ship with just a physical card and they're designed for a really old school world where all your transactions are happening in person. So say you're going to the movie theaters, right? You go to AMC. When you buy a ticket, you hand them your physical card, they will swipe it and give it back to you, right? You fully control that transaction and how it's happening, what the amount is. But that's completely changed over the last decade. Now, if I have like a Netflix or Hulu subscription, I just hand over my card to them. And then they're deciding on what frequency am I getting charged? Is that charge going up or down? And God forbid, if I have to cancel a subscription, they can make me jump through any hoop that they want. So we built this very interesting thing where you can cancel any subscription in a single click. So say a canonical example is your gym membership, right? Gyms are notorious for having you, you know, you can't do it over the phone. You can't do it like online. You have to come in person, take that walk of shame to the gym and say like, please cancel my membership. <laughs> yeah. So what we built is like a, a one-click kind of cancellation. So if you use one of our virtual cards at the gym, you can cancel anytime you like and the gym can't charge you anymore. 
See how that shifts the power dynamic from the merchant back to the customer where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Another example is like we're now inundated with free trials. Any product that you want to get online is like, hey, take a free trial for a month. And then it's like, whatever, $10.99 after, right? And so many of us forget. And then you get hit with that $10.99 charge or you forget for a year, right? Oh, I have the subscription. So we built a, a virtual card specifically for free trials. So what it does is like you get this totally different disposable card number. You use that to start your subscription. The card immediately stops working. It self-destructs. So you can enjoy your subscription with a complete peace of mind that if you like the product, you can go back and start paying for it. If you don't like it, they can basically never charge you. So these are, again, like the machinery behind this gets fairly complicated, but we're truly doing things from a consumer perspective. That's our background building all these like consumer products, and they're much more modern design for the customer. A legacy financial institution, because of, the comfortable position they sit in has zero incentive to try to go out and do these kind of innovative things. We're doing a whole bunch of more things, but I'm just giving you a couple of examples to paint that picture. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense when you think about how many times we sign up for the free trial and we forget and we think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could have a card that self-destructs after, I don't know, I mean, I wouldn't even wait until the last day. I am kind of weird like that. Like I would say, well, I've got 30 days. I don't want to wait until then because I'm more likely to forget if I leave it till the last minute, I'll cancel it after 25 days or 26, just so I've got a couple of days wiggle room I suppose when it comes to, to paying for things I would imagine I'd be able to leave it till last minute if I knew that the card would automatically disappear mm-hmm. after like 29 days or whatever the case is so it allows people a bit more flexibility it allows people a bit more safety I guess with their spending as well because if you can imagine if you know for a fact that the card is going to disappear you can put more trials through that card Mm -hmm. knowing that it goes away so you you have a lot more freedom i guess and a bit more power as you said for the actual consumer and the person spending the money versus the company which then was made me think well where do x1 sit with that like are you are they still beholden to to you guys in a way because you're giving them the cards and the card numbers and all those things. Like, do you ever have conversations with customers that makes them think maybe this do feel a bit under pressure by you in a way? Like the power shifted from companies selling them things to them, but then maybe there's a bit of pressure it subconsciously in the consumer's mind, or do you automate that in a way that gives them complete peace of mind? Yeah, I'll, I'll walk you through how it works. It's complete peace of mind. So when you create a free trial card, it will self-destruct in 24 hours. So your trial is begin by then. You don't have to do anything. You just completely forget about it and you have complete peace of mind and, and control. On that theme, maybe I'll tell you a couple of more things that, uh, that customers do with these, with these products that really help them, that makes them more empowered. Uh, I'll give you an actual personal example. We recently had a, a baby uh, you, know, you bring the baby home and then like a few days later, you get a call from the hospital and like, hey, this, this, this amount covered by your insurance, this amount is left for the bill. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. They're like, would you like to make a payment now? I'm like, sure. And they're like, can you give me your credit card number? 
And imagine that situation, right? You're on the phone where now if you only have one card number, you have to hand it over to somebody. And I kind of trust them, but still it's like a very, it's a very uneasy situation where like yeah. my entire limit and my associated card number, I'm going to have to hand over to this uh, lovely lady who's calling me from the hospital. So instead, we have a, a very special feature for this. It's called a one-time use card. So you create this, this card. You can put, even put a limit on it if you like. And then the card will only work once. So in my example, I was on the phone. It took me a second. I created the card. I said, here you go, please. Here are the digits for the, uh, for the credit card. They charged it. The transaction went through and the card self-destruct. I have complete peace of mind. They can take that card number, put it on a bathroom stall afterwards. I really don't care, right? It's just done from, from my perspective. That gives you such peace of mind, right? Like in any situation like that, if you don't trust the merchant, you don't have to hand over the keys of all your spending power to them. That's one. Another very interesting thing we've seen our customers do is budgeting. What's interesting and fundamentally flawed about existing budgeting services, and you can pick any of them, like Mint is very common in the, in the US, it's they're after the fact. So you've already spent the money and then you go see your report and they said, you have overspent on Amazon. I'm like, yes, I now see I've overspent on Amazon. Like, how can you help me with this? Um, what our customers do is something very clever um, is they put, uh, you can put a limit on a card a virtual card, and then let's say put it on Amazon. Uh, and then beyond that threshold, so say my limit is like, I have been overspending on Amazon during the holidays. I got to get this under control. I want to spend no more than 200 bucks on Amazon per month. So I create the card. It has a $200 limit. I put it into Amazon. That's like budgeting by default, where if I try to spend more than 200, it won't even let me spend it. Uh, and the use cases from, the, for, from this have been really interesting. Where you know it's my use case of like just cutting my Amazon spending after the after the holidays. <laughs> yeah. We uh, yeah. we were doing some customer research and we spoke to this lady who was a, a school teacher, uh, and she had a uh, a pet cat, and she really loved the the cat, but was spending way too much money on it than she could afford. So she basically made a a virtual card with a limit on it for all the spending in a month that she could afford for the for the cat, and now it's like automatic budgeting out of the box. So much more powerful than just seeing a report at the end of the month saying, by the way, you've overspent. Um, <laughs> so those are some examples of how consumers are getting empowered. It makes sense from, because what I was actually thinking, one of my next questions was going to be, like one of the fearful things of a lot of people if they become too empowered is that they start to forget about it, that they start being conscious of it in a way. Mm -hmm. And I do often share things like you know well maybe if they're too empowered if it's too easy they're more likely to use it in a way that hard gave people more flexibility more empowerment but then also more likely to not really feel the transactions in a way compared mm -hmm. to let's say cash payments where you can feel the money in your hand it's a lot more visceral they get a bigger sense of spending it if they can actually feel it whereby cars don't necessarily give them that i did actually think of asking this question before you then answered it Sid. so how does it actually impact people's sense of their finances when people think okay i've got a limit on this limit on that does that not take the empowerment away or do you think it has the opposite effect where you're putting limits on, on yourself in a way, but are they positive limits so that you never go above so that you then feel safe enough to spend around it, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think the the control lets them have more peace of mind. If you know, it's um a lot of good financial habits are very similar to good fitness habits. You have these kind of, uh, and I know you were a, a personal trainer as well. You've probably seen this a, a lot, right? As a, as a coach, people go through these ebbs and flows of motivation. And they're, when their their motivation has the peak, that's when they can make good decisions. So that when the when the low hits, they're prepared for it, right? It's very similar with like finances. If if in let's say January, after a lot of spending over the holidays, you're feeling like you need to set your financial life up properly, you can use these cards, set up some smart limits, so that when you know you're trying to overspend again after uh, sometime late at night shopping online, the limits will kind of remind you of your kind of strongest self when you put the those limits in. So I think it it just gives you more control, allows you to be. Um, I'll have more peace of mind that you will not go over the limits you set for yourself. What's on the horizon for you then, Sue? Because you created X1, things are going really well. You're taking the financial institutions essentially by storm. You know, the floor's being removed from underneath them a little bit regarding the financial side. What's next? Where do you go with this? Do you keep building X1? Do you branch out to other things that you think, well, this needs a bit of a a bit of innovation going on here this has been the same for far too long we need to improve this where do you see the future going world domination no uh for <laughs> us it's uh it's very important to, it's very important to have a credit card that works for every american so in america there are pretty different kinds of cards right so i think we want to make sure we have one offering that works for every single american that's one dimension we're going to grow the business in but we're also not going to stop on continuing to make this the smartest credit card ever. I'll give you a few things that are uh, that we're working on now. Um, the first one is very interesting. Credit cards have had this concept of adding an authorized user, which is the idea that okay, you have a credit card as a primary customer, but maybe let's say your your spouse doesn't have the best credit, or you want to share your finances with them, you add them as an authorized user on the card. When we looked at it with our kind of eye of building consumer products, we found that quite dumb because there are no controls. You just add someone and now they have full access to like your entire spending limit, right? So we came up with the idea of personas. So you can, instead of just adding someone, or is anyone blindly on your card, we, you add a persona. So you add a partner explicitly or a child or a parent. And what we started then doing is adding very specific features for each persona. So at a bare minimum, you get a lot of control where like, am I I'm adding someone to my card? Do I give them full access to everything or do they just see their spending their transaction? Um, you get real-time alerts every time they're spending something. So at least you can keep an eye. Um, and this works phenomenally for the use case of, let's take children, for example. So for children, uh, you can, you can put a limit on their monthly spending, like an allowance. You can even put a limit on like the an individual transaction. We have built what we call a safe spending mode, where children can't spend on like online gambling or pornography that just turned off by, by default. We build credit history, even if your child is under 13, and that makes such an enormous difference to their financial life. Like if your parent adds you to a, a credit card on time versus not dictates literally whether you can get like a home on lease or not when you're, you know, when you're out of the house. 
it dictates how much your APR will be on your first like car loan. So you package all this up. You also get like real time alerts on like anytime your child is spending, you get to see like, okay, where are they spending? What's going on? We package all these amazing features into the card. And now we have like, it's pretty mind blowing, 12% of all of our authorized users are now children. This is unheard of. Nobody adds like children to their credit card. But now we've found a way to do it very, very safely and created this like unbelievable new feature. So that's one thing we're kind of like scaling up. The other thing that's going to be launched soon is a trading platform where you can buy stocks with points directly in the X1 app. So when you spend with X1, you get a fairly generous amount of points. Conventionally, you would either like transfer them to like an airline, maybe get some cash back, redeem a transaction. We found it very interesting to let customers use these points. And instead of just getting plain cash back, why don't you get like stock back? So within the X1 app, if you have, let's say, $100 worth of points, rather than just taking some money out, you're saying, why don't I invest this into Apple stock? And you make it so easy and seamless and also makes it, um, there's less pressure because those points are essentially, people think of them as free money, right? We're like, look, I did some spending as a reward. I got this free money. And that reduces the barrier for someone to just like dabble and like buy a stock. and Hopefully, it, it starts them on the journey of being able to invest smartly as well. So that's like a huge kind of feature coming from our side. Uh, and you can see like with these features, this is not something you see on existing credit cards. Existing financial institutions don't think of their customers that way. They don't think of creating these products tied to the credit card, but we're operating in a very, very different way of creating value for customers. So these are some of the things on the horizon we're very excited by. I wonder, just before we, we finish off, Sid, how would you improve the financial industry? So whether it's banks, whether it's cards, what would you do differently if you were at the helm, if you were in charge? How would you change things? It's a, what I think the financial institutions get wrong. They get a lot right. I mean, you can just see by their balance sheets and how much money they make, right? So they're in, in some ways, companies to admire heavily because of how amazing a business they've created. If you talk to the individuals and you see how they like build products and how they think about them, for them, you are not a customer. You are essentially an asset. They think about you very differently, right? Which is, um, which doesn't, it leads to the best financial outcomes for the business. It often doesn't lead to the best consumer outcomes. We, from our background, think of it from like, a, like, hey, it's a customer. What do they need? And then how can we provide value and then capture some of that value as a business as well, right? So I think that's fundamentally what is required in, like, in a lot of financial institutions. Because going back to like credit cards, as I started out by saying, are really, really powerful instruments. Over time, they've just become very opaque. The average customer doesn't quite understand how they work. And that's because the um, existing institutions didn't think of them as customers and did not make the experience as transparent as it can be to help them understand the choices they're making. So I think that's the fundamental philosophical difference between like how a company like us would operate and how financial institutions operate. I think it doesn't, if they would 
especially for this coming generation and this era, they have to adapt to thinking a little bit more and become more customer centric rather than just like finance and asset centric. Well, it's clearly something that people of the future, so to speak, would be needing. It's almost like they're a bit tired of the traditional way of doing things and they're more open to having a bit more, I guess, control over their finances. I think a lot of the time people don't typically have a lot of control over their finances unless they put principles and practices in place their side. And in my experience anyway, financial institutions actually have a vested interest in not doing that for you in a way. It's like the the gym, as you said before, that they could run their company based off of the members that pay but don't show up in a way that they have this like benefiting from inactivity in a way within the within the company which makes me think that financial institutions have a similar thing going on where they're benefiting from people whether they use it or not whether they benefit the consumer or not where you guys at x1 have definitely taken a more customer centric and benefit approach so if it benefits the customer they're more likely to keep using it and keep being active users as opposed to inactive users so um yeah in other words just keep doing what you do and it seems like you're on the the right path and i hope there are lots of people that are more empowered because of the kind of work that you're doing so keep it up and i hope people can find out more about you so if they wanted to do that how can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing to learn more about X1, you can go check us out at x1.co. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Sid, thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Michael, you've been so kind. Thank you so much. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and they get the help and support from me and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle. So you set your membership up, you get two months free access. Hopefully I'll see you there and I look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want.